This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, and by Onyx Hunt. My guest today is Marilyn Vetter, the new president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We'll learn about Marilyn's journey into the bird dog and upland bird hunting world and how she ultimately landed her new role at our favorite habitat organization. We'll also discuss her mission, goals, and what she sees on the horizon for habitat in North America. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own maps, apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public, the landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, produces this program, which I am extremely grateful for. Today, we are joined by Marilyn Vetter. Marilyn, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you making time today. And it was quite a journey just to get into the office this morning. Accidents on the highway, uh, a 40-mile drive turned into an hour and a half commute, or hour and 45. It was like all of a sudden they were celebrating spring with car accidents. I don't know. We finally have great <laughs> weather. There was no reason to have accidents and there were five wrecks on the way here. So uh, I suppose I should be thankful that I wasn't part of any of them. Yes. I'm glad that you made it here safely. Uh, one thing this time of the year that I like to do is look out into the fields. Like it's it's actually nice finally. We finally, finally spring. Spring is here. It actually feels like summer. We're recording on Tuesday, the 11th. This podcast is going to be out on Thursday this week. So um, in between the day that we're recording and Thursday, Minnesota's turkey season opens. And I'm extremely excited about this because I've got four little hunters <laughs> going in the turkey oh, blind man. with me tomorrow. Two of them are going to be licensed to shoot two of them just want to be a part of the action and i'm guessing you might have seen a turkey or two driving all the way from your place into our office or no i didn't today but yesterday we were headed back from illinois we had to go down to see some friends for a birthday party and there were turkeys out strutting everywhere so hopefully they're on the target for you tomorrow it, yeah. it'll be fun for you to try to keep four littles quiet Mm -hmm. so that at least one of them is successful. The stories that have come out of that turkey blind over oh. the last couple of years, I can't. <laughs> I could do a whole podcast on that alone. Um, but my, my oldest, he's just about to turn nine, um, so he's still eight, and he has gone the last two years, and he's two for two on opening day. Fantastic. Big toms both times. And the stories that go with them are just 
I will remember forever. Like, not even 10 yards away, here comes this big turkey. And this little poor little buddy is so excited. His heart is racing a million miles an hour. And his first shot, Marilyn, it had to have gone more than five yards over the top of the turkey's head. And that big old Tom just sat there and beat up his decoy. He unloaded his gun. Every shot got further away from the bird. I had to have a pep talk. We brought it back in, reloaded the gun. He got it. Calm on it his, down. Yes, he got it on his fourth shot. And every time he tells the story, people look at me and they put up four on their hand. They're like, four shots? Apparently the turkey was on a suicide mission. <laughs> yes. Last year he got it in two shots. So he thinks this year he'll get it in one. And in the bullseye. Yes, well, and he's an excellent shot. That's well, it's probably nerves, right? It, it's oh. kind of like when people are in a in a deer stand and they talk about buck fever. It's it's yeah. the same thing. Do you are you a big game hunter, turkey hunter, or just upland hunter? I have shot a few deer over the years. I haven't in quite a while. I haven't really had time in the last few years. And my husband's a big archery hunter, and I haven't taken that up, which and he really wants me to. Maybe eventually. It's yeah. probably not in the cards right now. <laughs> not You've to take got a up little a new bit hobby. On, yeah, <laughs> not a good time to take up. Well, actually, I wouldn't say that. It's always a good time to take up an, a new hobby. Um, who wakes up first in your house to take care of your dogs, you or your husband, Clyde? So I wake up first. But he is the one that goes down to the kennel to take care of the dogs in the morning because there's always dogs in the house mm -hmm. and I, I'll usually let them out and then he's down to the kennel to let out the rest of them. How many dogs do you have in the house and how many are in the kennel? So one or two in the house. And, and if there's a puppy, there's always the puppies in the house. Mm -hmm. um, and we're down to the lowest number of dogs we've had in probably almost 30 years. We're down to four. Four dogs. Wow. That are your own dogs, but Correct. but Clyde's also taking care and training other people's dogs right. as well. When, when Sharpshooter Kennels is at full capacity, what what is the number there? So it's changed a lot. He had he no longer has a full time employee. It's been more of a, a a cycling down a little bit. He's purposely he he wanted to get to a manageable number of dogs that he can do by himself. So. The dogs are just coming in. We really haven't had good weather, obviously. Yeah. So focused on forced retrieve and obedience and those kinds of things over the last few months. So he'll probably take in maybe six to eight this year. Okay. And his dogs stand for a really long time. They, they, you know, they stay three, four months. They're getting towards ready towards utility and Navda and those kinds of things. So they, there aren't a lot of hit and miss unless it's a puppy that comes in for three, four weeks, but most of them stay for quite a while. And then of course, everybody leaves for hunting season. Yeah. Um, well, we have a lot to get into today and I, I just want to tell people because you and Bob St. Pierre recorded a podcast. Oh gosh. I want to say like three or four weeks ago and it was an excellent podcast. You and Bob did a real deep dive into your personal story. And I just think, you know, if, for Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever's On The Wing podcast, I would encourage our listeners to also go and listen to that podcast to go into a real deep dive into your personal story. Um, you were very open, and I think that's what I enjoyed so, so much. People want to know you, right? And so we'll do a little bit of that here today as well. Um, but I, I think there's, there's a lot more questions that I want to get into Um I, I would like to touch on, on your personal story because I think it's important, but we don't have to dive quite as far, okay. I guess is what I'm saying. So um, there's a saying that that's lived on for generations, Marilyn. I know you've heard it, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
You've heard that, right? Absolutely. And you care. You are very passionate about birds, wild places, dogs, and people that love all of them. Is that accurate? Absolutely. It really is part of my ethos. It's been part of my upbringing from when I was a little kid. More so than than I than I really suspected at the time. I didn't it took a long time for me to realize that I was different that way than than certainly my friends that I grew up with and even somewhat different than some of my siblings. I it has just really been part of my DNA. So who took you hunting that helped you make that connection that it didn't happen for your the rest of your family, brothers and sisters? So interestingly enough, hunting came much later for me. I I grew up on a cattle ranch, so I was very connected to the animals. You know, we, we raised chickens, we raised cattle, we had dogs and cats. And so I was kind of the animal shepherd ar- around the farm. And that was really a, a big connection for me. I was always the dog caretaker. Yeah. And so dogs were, and probably because I was the youngest and there was quite a gap between all of us kids that I, they were my buddies. And when the rest of them were in school, it's who I followed around the farm, quite literally everywhere around the farm. I don't know why it was so different for me. Uh, maybe because of that, because I was out walking the pastures with the dogs from the littlest, you know, I, if parents knew now, I was probably three years old, hanging out for hours at a time, building forts and doing stuff in the pastures by myself. And my mom was a busy farm wife. And, you know, as long as she didn't hear a scream, she thought we were good. And, yeah. and so I, I think it was probably that connection. My parents were very, very connected to their ranch and to all of their neighbors and to their siblings and cousins. And, and all of that was farmland and ranches. And they were very connected to the earth. And that was, I guess, something that was just cemented in me really early. My brothers were big game hunters. Hmm. None of them were really, uh, none of them were upland hunters. They did a little waterfall and none of them ever invited me hunting until my one brother invited me duck hunting. And I was- Remember how old you were? I was definitely preschool. Okay. I was probably five. And he told me I couldn't come along anymore because I talked too much, (laughs) which comes to surprise to no one. (laughs) Well, I have a five-year-old little girl that talks a lot, and she's going to be sitting in the turkey blind with us tomorrow. And part of the deal is, Lydia, you have to you have to be able to sit long enough for your brother to have a chance, you know. So we'll see how it goes. I she can uh, cheer when he gets it on the first shot. Oh, and she does because she's been in the <laughs> in the duck blind and in the goose blind with us, and she's been in the deer stand too, uh, mostly scaring deer away, but. She has seen the <laughs> birds come in and held them up and just, you know, just like the amount of chatter that doesn't stop afterwards. Anyway, sorry. That's Back cool. to your story. So my husband is the one that turned me on to upland hunting. Really? Mm-hmm. So you went that whole time period without hunting, but it was dogs that always stuck with you? Yes, it really was. Interesting. And they were, of course, they were cattle dogs and mm-hmm. And mutts and and so yeah, they I, weren't bird dogs. No, they were not. We didn't even have a half lab in the yard, which I know is hard for people to believe. But most of them were either shepherds or blue healers, those kinds of dogs. We had herding dogs, and so very loyal dogs too. Yes, they were, and that's why I, they followed. I don't know if I followed them as much as they followed me around, <laughs> and and they were always sure to keep us safe. You don't. You've never had a period in life without a dog, have you? No. Good oh, well, I you. suppose when I was in college in the dorm. 
I didn't have I didn't have an animal. Those three year three and a half years while I was in college didn't have one. What part of North Dakota? Central part. So I if you know where Harvey is, I grew up sixteen miles from Harvey out in a cattle ranch at you, you don't see it from anywhere unless you're flying over because we lived at the bottom of, of a valley. It was called Oak Valley Ranch mm-hmm. and still is. I guess I shouldn't use it in past tense. And and so we grew up near Harvey, near Animus, near Martin, but we really weren't close to town. And and so that was, we laughed at that was our address. It was We went to church in one place, we went to school in another, and our address was a completely different town. Do you miss it? I do, but we get back a lot. And my yeah. brother still has the family farm, the cattle ranch. And so I get to go back and it's funny when I come over that crest of that hill and pull into that yard, all of that nostalgia comes back though. Every, every bit of it does. Yeah. So I'm, I guess I, I'm blessed that I don't have to miss it so much because it's still part of the family. And I know it's just a seven hour drive away. Um, pretty large family. Do you guys, um, do you still get together out there for holidays? I, I, both of my parents came from farming families in Western Minnesota and both of, you know, farming families are traditionally pretty large. So, um, several brothers and sisters, which means I have a lot of cousins on both sides. And when we get together at holidays, I remember growing up, we had family football games on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Everybody played aunts, uncles. That's hearty. Yes. I mean, some of the snowdrifts <laughs> on Christmas were, I mean, it took you everything to try it. It was waist deep snow and then you get tackled and you're gone. You're disappeared in that snow. Right. Drift. And that's a highlight. Like after lunch, we would, we would have a draft and there was one team nobody wanted to be on. So when they got drafted to that team, it was, oh, you know, it was so fun. Do you guys have those get togethers on your farm too? We do. Probably we're all old enough now that playing, you know, like tackle football <laughs> would be a very bad idea, but uh, we do get together whenever, particularly when we get back there, I try to drive some of that because there's, there's four of them that live in the general area. So they have the luxury to get to see each other every now and then. And so when we come back, I try to get at least the five of us and whatever nieces and nephews and cousins are around, we try to get together. I have two siblings that live pretty far away, so it's a real shindig when they get there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those are those are great memories to have. Let's let's keep moving forward. So when you left the farm, where did you go? And was it college that took you away? University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. Okay. What'd you study? For two years, undecided. Yeah. Same here. I, I was yeah. a really curious person and I did and I felt like, my God, I'd gone from this small high school to all of a sudden the world was this panacea of information and I couldn't decide. So I took lots of introductory classes and, and it was when I took an introduction to communications that the director of the department came to me and said, I think you'd be really good at this. You're, you ask lots of questions. You're a good listener. And why don't you give it a try? So I took a few more classes in it and I absolutely loved it. What did that lead to? So I did get a minor in political science, and then that led me to my first broadcasting job um, at KFYR TV in Bismarck. While I was in college, I did work at KKXL, and I was, it's funny. Did you have a call name? I, well, no, I didn't because I was on the news side. So, you know, okay. I had to be very serious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you do the television? I did it oh, about three and a half years, not quite four. Any stories that you remember that stick with you? 
you know, it's always the sad stories that really stick with you. But I would say probably the thing that changed me the most, I, I covered city government and all of those kinds of things, but I also covered all of the reservations in North Dakota. That was a, a big part of my responsibility, one that I really enjoyed. So I, I spent a lot of time getting to know our indigenous populations and getting to understand their story. Mm-hmm. And I did a series and it was funny, we were talking about this earlier, how I had all these old broadcast tapes. And yeah. a year ago, I, I took them all in and said, throw them on a thumb drive because I don't know what I have on here. And I did a series called Rituals of the Plains. That was probably, for me, my proudest moment, only because it, it really dove into the, to their stories and what they were hopeful about and what they worried about and, and what it can keep them connected to their, to their people. So it was really, that one changed me a lot. You and I did a quick tour when you got here and we, that's when you mentioned, we were talking about this earlier. Um, when our production company started back in 1995, the cameras were enormous. The tapes that we had, the news tapes, our, our videographers have always come from a news background. Um, you know, and, so we have hundreds of these tapes, like you mentioned, and yeah, if you digitize them, they they all boil down to this little <laughs> thumb drive, which is funny. But I, even you know my my personal uh, television career is fairly short in the grand scheme of things. But I'll go back and watch some of my first stories that I produce, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was terrible. <laughs> I can't stand my own voice. What was I thinking? That the was hair awful. for me. It was like, oh my god. At least what you was have I hair. Thinking. Yeah. <laughs> You have great hair, by the way. <laughs> I, uh, the, you know, I, I, one thing that I found when I went back was probably, this is still probably one of the most exciting stories I ever did. It was the very first story I ever did. It was in college. Mm-hmm. I was part of Studio One, which is UND's uh, broadcast that they do once a week. And I got to go up and it, I believe the call name was KC-135. It's a big tanker. And we were refueling B-1 bombers. Wow. And I'm like, it's downhill after this. How do you get any better than that? Yeah. Laying in the belly of a, of a giant plane, watching the whole refueling process. It was incredible. Wow. Well, you went from television. Then let's, let's uh, we'll give a quick overview okay. to get us into present day. All right. So I had a good friend that was in the pharmaceutical industry and said, same kind of things. You ask good questions. You're a good listener. This is what's really going to make you important if you, if you want to. I knew that there was probably something different that I needed to do and got into life sciences very quickly moved from being a sales rep to an account manager, which isn't that different other than you really get to know an account and you get to ask lots of questions and build relationships. And, and I learned very quickly that relationships were a big part of who I was that helped me build some teams, get experienced in leadership. Um, I went back into the uh, political world that I really missed. I found that I really missed that political space. And that was when I became a lobbyist and worked on state houses in a nine state region in the Midwest and Great Lakes and loved that. And, and then, you know, from there moved to a couple of companies, led some increasingly larger teams, went to a startup that I got to see grow from its infancy to, you know, it's a, a, an enormous company now and really just doing amazing things for patients. And I became very, very connected to the life sciences. But during that time, I was always a volunteer. 
whether it was for the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association as a, a chapter starter on a local level there, became a judge, uh, was a part of their executive council for 20 years. And that was how I got to know Pheasants Forever, is the two organizations have a relationship. Mm-hmm. And they were really curious, Pheasants Forever, how had Navda really moved the needle on attracting women and families to their, their organization? So we started having conversations about that. You know, the linkage there is exactly what you just started this, this whole podcast about is families. Yeah. And the linkage to families is having a mom that's either engaged or accepting of, of that relationship Mm -hmm. with the outdoors. And it's pretty easy to get women involved when dogs are involved and they see themselves having this confident presence with their own dog. And, and when we started talking, they said, well, would you consider being on our board? so that you can bring some of that learning and melding these two organizations closer together. I was on their board for seven and a half years. NAVDA? Um, no, I was on a, a NAVDAS for 20 years, but okay. on Pheasants Forever, I was on the board for seven and a half years before I, I sought out this role mm-hmm. and worked on the strategic plan, was an officer, and was most recently the vice chair. And both yeah. of those were volunteer positions, right? Uh, absolutely, as a to chambers of commerce and trade associations and professional associations. I've been on dozens of boards and it's, it's a, it's a part of who I am Mm. that was started from our earliest. Uh, All of my siblings are guilty of the same sins of giving away most of their free time. And because that's what our parents taught us, whether if it was giving to a neighbor or giving to your church or your community, it, and it's, it's really been, an enriching part of my life. And if people don't volunteer, they should try it because they will realize how much it changes them. So I like to tell people that, um, I, you know, like a missionary goes out on a mission trip. How many times have you heard about a missionary coming back and it changes them? You know, they're trying to go out and do good work, volunteering their time, but it's often the person that volunteers that has the reward that gets blessed in return. And that does, it doesn't matter if it's, a uh, mission trip through your church, or if it's serving uh, somebody out in a field or working with other people, when you volunteer, the reward comes back. Tenfold. Yes, it really does. So was you had your day job, but you were also volunteering all this time. Was that where you really felt like that filled me up? That was my purpose, was to be serving all of these other communities besides my day job? I think so. I, I'm, you know, self-professed caretaker. I very much like my mother. And, and I, I always felt like it was my responsibility to be, if I was going to participate in something, if I was going to be interested in hunting, then I needed to be participating in organizations that supported that. And same th- reason I was involved in boards that supported my trade, my, my professional association. If I was going to be a professional in a space, then it was my responsibility to serve in a volunteer capacity to help others grow in their own professional path. And so I guess for me, it's a sense of purpose and responsibility. Sure. Um, So last summer, when the announcement went out from Pheasants Forever that the search was on, Matt Kaharski was in and and we did a podcast together. And he kind of explained the process from their perspective, Uh, the chairman board of directors for Pheasants Forever. um, And and he took a big, that was a big role for him to uh, work with the firm that was hired to find you, essentially. <laughs> but 
he explained what it was like from their perspective. What was the search process like from your perspective? So they kept the it open the posting part open for a really long time mm. till the middle of September. And that's probably was the hardest for the applicants because, and I, I get why they did it because they wanted people to come to them organically, but they was also gave the agency time to go out and try to recruit candidates too. They, they really wanted to make sure that they had a thorough vetting process. So once you applied, then there was this purgatory that you had to sit in for a while until you knew, like, were you going to move to the next level? And How then, long was that? Oh, well, so I, I think Howard announced very early April the closing of the postings was the middle of September. And then after that, they were like, okay, so these are the next, the next rung was, we're, we're going to move forward with these, I think it was 28 or 30 candidates. We want you to answer these 15 questions in long form. And so I was part of that pool. So we, we all had to write our responses. And you think about, well, that took time for me, but think about the people on the nominating committee. And they had to read, all those resumes, all those of, if they had letters of reference, plus all of these questions that they answered. Yeah. And then from there, they whittled it down. I think it was 12-ish. And they had us get interviewed by the nominating committee. That was October, I think. Early, end of September, early October. And from there, then they said, all right, well, now we're going to have eight of you present in person to the nominating committee and, and we want you to present on the, the following things. They, they had us answer two questions. Most of them were based about membership and then, you know, how can we increase membership and connectivity and how would you go about that? And that was, I remember, I think it was, it was after Thanksgiving. It was when we had a terrible snowstorm here in Minneapolis because I, I got stuck. Um, I couldn't, cause I was back in North Dakota cause we'd stayed back there during the whole hunting season and I'd flown in and I couldn't get out. It was, yeah, a poor, every applicant went through that. And then from there, they narrowed it down to two. And then the two of us presented virtually to the entire board in December. And then they went back and forth and did their own internal checks and uh, met and they came to me in the end of December. So the announcement came out, uh, was it January, something mm -hmm. like that? And then you were officially introduced at Pheasant Fest. Um, and now your day-to-day, -day, we'll get into that in, in a second. But I got to ask, did you raise your hand and say, I feel like I want to do this? Or did somebody say, Marilyn, you should do this? It was more the former than, than it wasn't as me as much raising my hand. I showed some curiosity in it. And it's one of those things I've probably been guilty of, guilty of most of my life. I'm like, oh, but they want, even though I was part of the process that developed what, what does the candidate look yeah. like? <laughs> I had this uh, thing in my mind of what I thought the candidate should look like. And it was more not about who they were as a what person. Is, what was in your mind? What did you think? It I felt like it should probably be someone that has a PhD in conservation, in wildlife biology. And because the organization had not had that. And... I, it's funny, even though I was involved in it, Howard did not have that. And he was an extraordinary leader. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of people that were former board members that called me up and were like, you're not working right now. You, you, I'd, I'd left the startup I was with. So I had this break and like, this is the universe. What in God's name are you waiting for? I mean, how, you know, 
you have a green light. Why don't you apply? And it was really those folks that said, read, read what we designed as what we want the candidate to be. You fit on not everything, but no one fits on everything sure. on any application. And it was that I had to get over that part. Like, I'm not going to hit on all of them. I suppose that's that overachiever part that I thought, yeah. well, if I don't fit everything, but I had had a link to conservation. I had had a link to the passion because of my Absolutely. board involvement. So that made it a lot easier for me to then. And then once I did it, then I was, I was all in. Well, I will tell you, um, and I agree with this. When the announcement came out, I said, perfect. That was my response. I said, that's perfect. Cool. Thank you. And I, everybody that I talked to, which is a lot of people, everyone had the same response, which, um, I think is, is pretty special. I hope you go into this knowing that there is a giant amount of support behind you. I appreciate role. that very much. Yeah. It's important that people feel that way because oh yeah, what we do is super important. And, and I'd, I would never want someone to not believe in the work of the organization because they didn't believe in a person. For sure. Um, like I mentioned right off the top, people don't know or don't care what you know until they know how much you care and you obviously care deeply about it. Um, so how many times, Marilyn, have you been asked for your vision for the organization? It's <laughs> got to be hundreds by now, if not more. Yeah. And, and I think that's normal. We've had a 40-year-old organization with yeah. two leaders. So the first thing that people think about is that, oh, there's going to be a lot of change. And, and so I think it's really normal when they ask, well, what do you see as the, the vision and mission for the organization? And it's a fun conversation, quite honestly, because we all agree what our mission is. Our mission is to, we are the Habitat organization, to build and restore and maintain quality habitat for pheasants and quail and all of the critters that there, live there with them. And that doesn't change no matter who's leading the organization. The mission is our mission statement. and so. Unless our members, unless our partners and sponsors and agencies come to us and say, we need something wholly different, mm -hmm. that won't change. The vision has always changed with the organization, with evolution of the landscape, evolution of policy. We didn't start with farm bill biologists. They started 20 years ago. That is now a huge part of who right. we are. When you think about we are the largest employer of, of wildlife biologists that work on private lands, it's because of that evolution. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we will continue to evolve. And the other thing that I want people to know is that I, I don't get to own vision. This is all of us together, whether it's chapter feedback, whether it's feedback from our partners, our agencies, our sponsors, and our employees. And it's actually a fun opportunity that the entire leadership team is getting together for the first time because a lot of them are new to their roles in about a month. And that's what we're going to knock, knock around together is what is the, the vision that we see for ourselves mm -hmm. three to five years from now? What does success look like? How do we get there? And what opportunities does that present to us? So that really, to me, is how vision should evolve, is it should be all of us together. And it's great because we get lots of feedback from our chapters. And that was what Pheasant Fest really gave us by having a national convention, it gave us a lot of touch points with our chapters. And, you know, our chapters are not shy. 
which we don't want them to be yeah. about giving us feedback about what we do well and what we could improve on. And it's important that we continue to hear that. I know a lot of chapter presidents. I'm out in the field regularly and I speak with them and they're passionate. And you have to be to put that much time and energy of your own into an organization. So I can imagine the kind of feedback you get. When you took over, you know, I think like a, a head coach comes into the locker room and speaks to the team. Did you come in with a big speech the first day? All right. You have a, it's not like a victory speech, but in some way you have to address, you know, your, your, uh, team for the first time. What was that like? So it, first of all, the, the team in the office is pretty small. You know, our, our assets are deployed across Bob, the country. get in here. Yeah. I need to talk to you. <laughs> and, and sadly, so I felt really bad about this. My first day was supposed to be February 1st. It was February 1st, but during the night on January 31st, my oldest dog, got really, really ill. Mm. And he had been healthy as a champ up to that. And it was one of those like, yeah, this is, this is a life altering occurrence. And what we suspect is that his, one of his valves tore. And so that meant that I need to, to get him into the vet at some point that day to, to say our goodbyes. And so my first day, which I was supposed to be in the office, they had cookies and all that stuff. And I'm sure people were like, what the heck? She's not here. But what a better under organization to understand mm -hmm. that I needed to be at home. And so I took a bunch of conference calls and stuff that day, but I didn't get to do the hoorah, like run through the paper as I oh. go in the door. <laughs> but it really, in a lot of ways, was the beginning of a different time for me and the end of a different time. You know, Chappie had been with me almost 15 years in lots of transitions in my life. And so in some ways it was like, okay, mom, I'm ready to go. You go get them. You do this. And, and so what we did then for the next couple, and everybody was so busy with Pheasant Fest. It would have been really selfish of me to say like, hey, let's shut down what you're working on because in two weeks you have to impress the 33,000 people that are coming through the door. Mm -hmm. So we really stayed focused on that. It was about four weeks ago that we did well, you want to call it a virtual town hall. And so we spent the first five weeks getting questions from, from people in the field. Like, what do you want to ask her? Yeah. What do you want to know? And a lot of it was these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. We took an hour then to just get to know people and we'll probably continue to do those kinds of touch points. Yeah. But that we tried to keep it a little more subtle. Not to mention that Howard is really, uh, you know, around in the background until the end of June. And well, he's got to show off that big tattoo. Well, yeah. And in fact, today he's getting the quail. <laughs> I can't April, wait to see yeah, it. Yeah, April 11th. Now that you say that, today is the other arm. And wow. I can't wait to see I those know. two. It, I, when I heard he was getting a tattoo, I was like, well, that's cool. And he went all out. Oh that's my God. A, that's like a full-size pheasant to scale. Six hours in the chair. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm like, man, that, is, and yeah. I, I, I clarified with everybody that is not happening this go around. <laughs> oh, well, then I got to remove that question yeah. here. Let yeah. me just There's, delete. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he learned a really good lesson and so did I. If your team, you know, challenges you with something, you better be able to really better, live up to it. Yes. So <laughs> what kind of leader do you want to be? I suppose not any different than what I've tried to be in the past. It's my foundation of leadership is always trust. It's a two-way street and it has to be earned. And that, but I will always assume that everyone's intentions are good at the outset. And even if that's burned me, it doesn't change who I, who I want to be. I, 
I think we should always expect the best and assume the best out of everyone. And so trust is foundational. I, I think the other thing I want people to understand is I'm very open to innovation. I love innovation. I'm a huge ideator. I, I love to think and, and challenge things. That doesn't mean that we won't keep doing the same thing, but we should always test it. So testing innovation, empowering our field teams to feel like they have the ability to do their job without having to ask for permission a lot. And so I, one of the things that we're trying to do internally is what are some of the subtle processes, very small processes that we can put in place that allow people their own decision trees so that they don't have to keep coming to us, make ourselves efficient, more streamlined, empower them with, gives them clear guard roles. The other thing I'm really, I think is super important is for leaders to be clear. Clarity if you have ever listened to Brene Brown, you know, clarity is kind. And, and sometimes it can feel difficult, like, oh, wow, that's a hard stop. But at least they know. And so I want people to feel like ex they know exactly where they stand in the organization, whether they're a volunteer, a partner, an agency member, or one of our employees. And I think the other thing is that people know that I'm very open. And I'm, you know, I would say I'm an open book. But I'm also very disciplined to our mission. And so while we, we will contemplate innovation, we can't take our, our eyes off of what our mission is. And so as long as you, it's like driving down the highway, you always look ahead and you have peripheral vision that keeps you out of those accidents and your bumper not getting swiped off, but you never lose track of where you are so that you, you stay on the right path. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Hunting season might be over, but that doesn't mean it's time to mope around the house and hang your head. That's because it's meat season. Now's a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. 
Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. I would get to work with quite a few of your biologists in the field and meet them and share their stories. And we share habitat success stories. That's really the mission of our TV show. And in a lot of ways, the podcast too. I, I have a lot of your employees on this show regularly to talk about what's happening in the field, what they're working on, um, opportunities for people to get involved, things like that. Um, I, th- I feel like, you know, you're, you're at the top of this big organization, you know, and there's so many people, um, mm-hmm. that do you feel like you have a, an open, um, policy for people to connect with you or how do you connect with your team? Maybe is, is a better way of phrasing that and have a relationship with your team. I do want people to feel like they can reach out to me. The one thing I always say is be confident enough, unless it's some, some internal HR issue, to just let your boss know. Because I would never want people to think that they're going around someone. And I think it's really important for people to be able to say, hey, I want to reach out to Marilyn. I have a question. I want to get to know her a little bit better. But I just want to let you know that. Because I think when you don't take that step, it makes someone in between feel like, hmm, I wonder why. Yeah. And so I'm, and that'll be always my next question is, awesome. That's great. I'd, I'd love to have a cup of coffee. Your boss knows, right? Because I, I just want to make sure that, you know, this is cleared with them. Because I, I think while you want to have an open book, you also want to have chain of command. So Because when you aren't communicating, people start fabricating in their mind what they think there's a reason behind that conversation. So part of clarity is being super clear on communication. And so I'm absolutely excited to get to know people. I, I've had a couple of people say like, Hey, you want to come along on a fire? And that's one thing I haven't done. So you bet absolutely. I, I, I some point want to be along and, you know, when they're dropping that drip torch along the line and, and just watch it. And, you know, I'm kind of a fire buck anyway. So it's powerful too. <laughs> I know it it's is so crazy. powerful. There's and how it changes the landscape. Yes. And it's just, it's amazing. Oh gosh, being out in the field is just the best. And I know your role requires you to travel. I know it requires you to be in the office a lot, but anytime you get to be out in the field, there's there's magic that happens out there. And it gets it's about getting your hands dirty. And well, I the, think the you have to soil. because you can really get sidetracked. If you are not staying connected, you very quickly forget what the organization is. So I, I've done this when any leadership role I've had along the way, I'd be like, all right. To my, to my members of my, my lobbying team in D.C. when I was at, at my pharmaceutical companies, like, you need to go work with a sales rep. Not only to learn what their role is, but to hear the challenges of the physicians who are going to enunciate the challenges of their patients. And that's how you stay connected. And it's no different than being in the field with a biologist because I get to hear about them mm-hmm. and I get to hear about the landowner. And what policies are working for them. And so I did that a few years ago. Rick Young was still on, on staff at the time. He hadn't retired. And he took me around Minnesota. And we spent a whole day meeting landowners and members of his team. And it gave me, it was hugely eye-opening. And it gave me a much better sense of the relationships that are created between our biologists and our landowners. I feel like, you know, there's, there's so many vol- or, uh, volunteers chapter volunteers and then members too. I mean, as you, as you branch out into all the ways that people are involved with Pheasants Forever from full-time employees to volunteers to, like I said, 
members, you know, this is an opportunity. There's a lot of your members listening to us talk right now. What do you want to tell them? Well, I did get to go to a banquet, so that was fun. And, yeah. and, and I'll did try to... Did they ask you to emcee? Well, I didn't really emcee. I helped a little bit with some of the raffles okay. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I would say I was a part... To, they asked me to speak. So it, it, was, a, it was a little bit of a last minute uh, request. So no, they did not make me full on be emcee. <laughs> I want them to know that I'm in it with them. That this isn't a job that I took that I was like, oh, that's an interesting title or role. It really was because I very much believe in our model, which is highly dependent upon our chapters and their involvement. And that that will always be part of our vision and our mission is that the chapters are going to be a fundraising arm for themselves so that locally they can have an impact and they can really have charge of their own funds and what they want to do and that I appreciate that. I want them to know how much I I value that model and the work that they do. And and that they should always feel like they have an open door. I can't be there for 145,000 members, but they have regional reps. They have yep. chapter leaders that there are ways that they can keep that. You know, if there's something monumental or they have a eureka moment. Yes, we want to hear about it. Yeah. But I do want them to believe that not just me, but the entire organization is really invested in their local chapter success, which means that they're deploying the funds that they raise on the ground locally. Do you think, so let's see, Pheasants Forever was started in 1982, Quail Forever in 2005, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we will ever get Quail Forever to reach the, the size that Pheasants Forever has grown to and how long do you think that'll take us? I, well, we're almost there from a staff perspective. Really? Which is incredible from at least from, so because mo- a lot of the staff like myself is both. Mm-hmm. And then you have dedicated staff for pheasant country, dedicated staff for quail country. And then you have that border in between, you know, or like mm-hmm. Missouri and Kansas, Kansas that, yep. you know, in Nebraska, even yep. that they're, they're, they're playing in both spaces. So our wildlife biology team is almost the same. It's either 46 or 48% of our biology team is in quail country. But when you think about wow. quail country, it's huge. It's 25 yeah. states in Bob White country. Yeah, because I think of quail country being a lot larger than pheasant country. It is. And and they have more challenges because it's not just bobs. They have, then you have- Merns, the, gambles. Right. You yeah. have our desert species and you have our Western species. Plus you have some folks- that are focused on the sage grouse initiative. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, and, and they're obviously, they're more in that, that pheasant country and in that space. So I think from a staff perspective, we'll probably get to a point where we actually grow larger on the quail forever side, just because of the dramatic diversity and the, the huge amount of states that we have to play in. Membership will be a little bit slower, I think, but I do think that we will get there. And it's one of those like snowballs catching Mm-hmm. Um, catching speed and catching, um, and we're trying to figure out like, how do we get into that Bob White space? It's different than the way we hunt in the Midwest. How it, so? So when you think about the Midwest, most of us are DIYers, right? We're, we don't own large tracts of land. Mm-hmm. Um, we may go here or there on a game farm a couple of times a year, but most of our time is schlepping around on private, I mean, on public lands. Mm-hmm. And that's not the space that, you know, Texas and Florida gets to to do. They don't have as much public access. And so 
they either have their own private lands or they participate in the plantation space. And, and for us, it's, it's figuring out how do we tap into that, that community. Does that, that limits it in, in some ways, right? I think it does just inherently. So when you look at the Western species, that is, you know, you look at what Arizona is only 18%, I believe, uh, privately held and the most of the rest of it is public lands or, and so those spaces, I think they're also much bigger. They're, they're, it's just really hard to really tap into those communities. But I think that's where we're seeing some early wins. And Bob White, I think it will happen. It's, it's, we have to, to crack the code on how do we get the folks that are going to plantations also understand that there is, a, if they want the tradition to last, there is a role for all of us to play in making sure that that tradition is, is out there for everyone whether or not you can go on to a plantation. And so, and we have plantation owners that are super interested in making sure that that happens because they too understand that that population will eventually go away if we don't protect the culture and heritage of hunting and whether or not it's on public or private lands. So yesterday I was watching a Minnesota bound story that we just produced. Like we were talking earlier, just a variety of shows here outside of the flush. And there was an interview that Ron Shera did with the DNR biologists out in the field, and they were talking about the disappearance, the disappearing meadowlarks in our state, and that's a prairie bird. And he said something that I wrote down because it just kind of shook me, you know? One of those things that every once in a while it happens where somebody says something that really hits home, and he said, why, you know, this, this was a bird that was so plentiful. 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago and beyond that. But now it's, it's rarely seen. So people don't even know that this bird is disappearing. Why would they care about something or how, why should they care about something that they don't even understand? That's what he said. Why should they care about something they don't understand? So talk about an old saying, the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. I believe that's what the metal arc is, just like our monarchs. Yeah. The loss of those integral species. When you think about how prolific metal arcs were, even when I was a kid, and that dramatic collapse is linked to something. And that is a precursor to the rest of the species that live in that space. Mm -hmm. It's not something unique because we didn't find that a disease came in and wiped them out. It's the loss of the lands that they live in. And that's why we need to care because it will not just be the metal arc. It will be everything else that lives in, in those kinds right. of environments. There's a, if there's a great book called um, Buffalo for the Broken Heart. It was by, about a gentleman, it's a true story, in South Dakota who took over a cattle ranch that had, had cattle on it forever. And, and like lots of cattle ranches, um, particularly after drought years, all you see left in the fields is, you know, stinkweed and all the other noxious stuff that cattle won't eat. Yep. And he had been talking to someone and they said, well, you know, he was like, why is this so different than, than it was in the past? And so he converted his cattle ranch to a bison ranch and he micromanaged. And you can do this with cattle too. You, you see actually some of our, our really dedicated uh, ranchers they, they micromanage where their cattle are. And so they put them in small spaces for three days and they wipe it out and then they move them frequently 
because they're going to eat everything that's there, including the noxious weeds. And, and he talked about how when he put bison on his pastures and then he slowly moved them into other parcels, what changed? And the flora that he hadn't seen for years had come back. And so did all the songbirds. Mm. And it's, those are the things that we don't really know. Why is it so much that the, it doesn't matter if we don't understand? We know it's happening. So we have to find a, an answer to that. And if we don't dig into it, if we say this species doesn't matter, well, then what species does? Is it antelope? Is it elk? Which one tricks? Which one yeah. tricks? And, and, and then is it too late? Yeah. So I go back to taking my kids out turkey hunting. And I take them hunting for everything. And it doesn't matter if I'm successful at harvesting because I'm out there to give them the experience. And I tell people on this show all the time that the best thing you can do is bring somebody with you because it goes back to what that DNR biologist said in the interview. Why would anybody care about something they don't understand? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so, it, if, if they understand how amazing this wild creature is, then they can respect it. And then they see everything that is required for this animal or bird to live. Then they care about that. I think the other thing, particularly when we talk about learning about the environment, learning about the world that's around us, you and I and those of us in our space, we know why we do it because it reminds us that we're connected to something much bigger than we are. And it's not about getting up to go to the office every day. It's about the fact that we are surrounded by an entire ecosystem that we impact and that impact us. And, and to me, that's why hunters hunt. It is not because I care about a bag limit. It's because it, it reminds me of where I sit in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I am a part of it. We're all a part of it. We're all a small part of it. But if we don't all play a part in it, then, then there's, there's not enough of us to care. And it's just like the metal arc story. If we don't care about metal arcs, then when do we care? And, and that's, I think, the reminder. When people don't understand something, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It means that you should invest in it. Mm-hmm. Figure out what is it that makes Travis take his kids out there? What is it that makes the rest of us take friends out? And, and I think about the adults and the kids that I've taken with. A, young, um, a friend of ours, uh, her young daughter went with us probably now. It's been oh, almost 25 years. It was her very first bird she shot. And we came back and we're like, okay, we're going to teach you how to clean it. And so she, and we happened to have a friend of us with us at the time who was a veterinarian. And he said, so let's treat this like a dissection. And so we, you know, he took the bird apart. Then he opened up the inside. He's like, okay, this is the heart. What does that do? This is the liver. What does that do? And it changed her forever because she knew then she wanted to go. She, I want to go in the medical field. Wow. And, and it spurred something in her to now as like, and she's now a physician's assistant. She works in the orthopedic field and she opens and closes and, or no, probably doesn't open. She closes, she does sutures, she does, and she loved that fine-tuned technique that she would have never known. And so it wasn't just her, con- and now she's a big game hunter. And, and, that's, and she's not as much of an upland, but she'll probably come to back 
to that someday. But she learned a connection. Accidentally drop a dog off on her front step. She, yeah, she'll she, be a very yeah, <laughs> Exactly. I know. She every now and she was like, do you have a puppy that, you know, that didn't make the cut for whatever reason? So one of these days she'll get another one. Yeah. But it is those accidental occurrences that teach us why we should care. Yeah. And somebody else in an interview, Bob and I did a project. Gosh, this was, I think, over 10 years ago. And um, we interviewed the Minnesota DNR. Uh, uh, what's, what's the title I'm thinking commissioner? of? Commissioner? The commissioner, yes. And there was something stated that has stuck with me all these years. If we all take just one person out hunting this year, we can double in one year. And then if the next year we could double again, it's, it can be that, that simple. easy. It really can be. And it's just a reminder that I have always held on to. I try to bring other people with, and that's why whenever opportunities come up, you know, to bring somebody along, you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know the story. Like you, you just don't. don't, you don't, but if they're going to be able to care about this land in the, in the wild spaces and the wild animals, they have to understand it and appreciate it in order to really put their time and energy into it. They have to experience it. Yeah. Um, last question here for you. What do you want your legacy to be when you punch the clock, assuming they bring <laughs> clocks back to punch out <laughs> <laughs> your final day oh. of presence forever and quill forever? Could you even, can you even grasp that at this point? I think in some ways, uh, well, so legacy is kind of always this heady word. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's legacy so much as I want people to know what it is that I feel is important. And, and to me, it's all about connection. And it's that connection to conservation. It's connection to community. It's connection to mission. And creating a culture of connection to, to our work. And just like our Call of the Uplands created a culture of philanthropy, that we hadn't really known existed. Well, some of our, our really important projects that we're working on is trying to create connection to communities. And then communities connect to communities and it becomes a much larger community. And so for me, it's really about helping communities see how they are connected to our work, how our, our employees see how they're connected to communities. Those chapters in uh, all the, across the country and Canada they are our entry into that community. And then how do we figure out how we make that community better? How do we help them understand if they participate in what we do, how does it benefit them? And I think Patagonia, Arizona is a really good example of that. The, the team used it as a, as a pilot project of like, if we sit down with local business owners and really talk about what do hunters bring to your community? How does that change things for you? And now when you go there, you don't go by a storefront that doesn't have a Quail Forever sticker in the window. And, and they talked about, well, like, you know, we never really put two and two together, but about 40% of our, our earnings from the year in hotels there are from quail hunters. Hmm. And, and then they were like, so that means that we have to have a responsibility to that. It's getting people to understand the connection and their part in the responsibility of that connection. So I lied. I do have more questions. Okay. I'll try to limit it, but the call of the Uplands campaign was, was a success. And we just celebrated that pheasants forever, quail forever celebrated that what's next. 
So part of it is to, to continue to, to put a bow on that, celebrate that through the end of this year, to recognize the hard work that went into it. The team probably does take a, need to take a breath. And I think then the other part of that is that stewardship of those donors that really came in through that. We learned a lot about how we can connect to our members as donors, as, as part of their legacy. And, and so we will continue to take those learnings and make sure that we implement that. It's really in our, in our daily work. But I think what, what is next for us is really about how we create those connection points in not just individuals, but in communities. And, and how do we get them invested in a, a habitat management area or a build a wildlife area? And, and how do you focus that around an area so that you can have an impact? We can't just do 40 acre plots here or there. We have to find, even if they're polka dotted through an area, that creates an environment that birds can exist. We know they can't just have grass and they can't just have crop. They have to have both. And how do we create that mosaic, that patchwork quilt? And, and so the Call of the Uplands built us a foundation of success. It taught us a lot about how we just really run the organization from a financial perspective going forward. I do think there's going to be other ways of like, other streams of revenue that we haven't really thought about. What does that look like? As now corporations want to say like, how do we participate in this process? And how do we make sure that if they're going to invest their dollars, that they find organizations that are aligned with their desire to make sure that the environment has clean water and soil and is open for their communities where their employees are. This will be the last question, I promise. Let's leave people excited about um, the future. Why should our listeners, why should members of Pheasants Forever be excited today and moving forward? The organization's never been healthier. The Howard Vincent and his leadership team have built an extraordinary organization. When you think about we're almost 500 employees, and what's really awesome about that is well over 300, almost 350 are biologists that is deploying the resources that they've committed through their own membership dollars, through their own donation dollars. This organization is 100% invested in what they want. And, and that mission has not changed. And so I think if you, well, we all felt it. Pheasant Fest this year was different. Record-breaking? It was record-breaking for sure. But what I, the vibe People were, maybe it was post-COVID and they couldn't wait to get out and just experience the world together. But there was a genuine sense of excitement about the organization, the celebration of the success of the campaign. Because it wasn't just the success of the campaign. It was, hell yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. And if we challenge ourselves, we can do more. And I think that was really important for me to see is that I think people now see their part in it. And that we can do more than we thought we could. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, We'll leave it at that. I sincerely appreciate you making time to come in here today. Thank you. I hope your drive back is less eventful than your (laughs) drive here. (laughs) Let's hope so. I want to say congratulations to you. you. I know I speak for for so many people by saying we're just excited to have you. Uh, This is perfect in the in the first thought I had when they announced your new position and that you had accepted this role, I said, perfect. And I, I know a lot of people feel the same way. So I appreciate uh, that very much. We're excited for what's to come. 
and appreciate all that you do to help get the word out. It's really important that the more people that hear it really believe it and, and see their place in it. We all have our gift. We all have our place. And try to, try to do what we can with what we have. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Flush Podcast. Mm-hmm.